The Mears Ambulances is one of the largest, most trusted ambulance design and manufacturers in the world, with a vision to build safe, reliable, and efficient emergency vehicles to assist paramedics in saving lives. The Mears manufactures Type 1, 2, and 3 emergency medical and fire ambulances that set the bar for quality, innovation, attention to detail, and rigorous testing. To find a Demir's ambulance dealer in your region, visit www.demir's-ambulances.com. Your partner on the road, every day, on every call. Is your fire department prepared to face challenges like the turbulent economy, recruiting and retention, and funding? Level up and get the training and strategies you need on the issues that matter most at WAVE 2023. Featuring ESO Training Academy on April 11th through the 14th, 2023 in Austin, Texas. ESO, a leading provider of fire RMS and EPCR software, brings together national industry leaders, quality training, and experienced fire and EMS professionals for a unique conference experience that will inspire you to drive change within your organization and prepare for 2023's challenges. For a limited time, our listeners can use the discount code FIRETRUCK to save $100 on a full four-day conference pass. Don't miss this opportunity to learn from some of the nation's top experts in emergency services. Visit ESOWave.com to register today. That's E-S-O-W-A-V-E.com. See you in Austin on April 11th through the 14th, 2023. This podcast is brought to you by Flex 7 from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Like a trusted turnout jacket you've had for years, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric delivers a perfectly broken-in feel on the very first wear. Flexible, comfortable, empowered with the strength of enforced technology, Flex 7 Outer Shell Fabric is made to move. To learn more, visit tenkatafabrics.com slash flex7. Flex 7, powered by Enforced Technology, only from Tenkata Protective Fabrics. Hi, welcome to Fire Grand Strategies and Other Stuff from the Street with Anthony Avillo and Jim Duffy on Fire Engineering Talk Radio, where firefighters come to share their knowledge, their ideas, their opinions, and most of all, have a little bit of fun at the same time. So stay tuned and enjoy the show. Hey, 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 welcome to the March edition of Fireground Strategies and other stuff from the street on Fire Engineering Talk Radio. Um, I'm Jim Duffy. My co-host is Anthony Villo, and we have two special guests tonight with over 60 years service to the fire service of their individual states, their cities, and the country through their discussions, and now a new book that they're coming out with. We're going to get that in a minute, uh, but before we start, I'd like to just talk a little about we lost a firefighter in Buffalo and uh, if you pray please please pray for uh, firefighter Arnold uh, Jason Arnold of Buffalo Fire Department was caught in a building collapse 
Um, he's 37 years old, seven years on the job, and he has a young son. So you know what? Um, shows like this and books that uh, fire engineering is letting loose will help keep us a little bit safer. But again, to the family, both the families at the firehouses and the families at home, uh, to Jason Arno, um, thank you for your service. So tonight we have two two wonderful guests, um, and this for Jim Duffy is going to be a little. Um, I'm going to be a little out of place. I'm a suburban firefighter. Uh, the the highest I ever fought a, a fire in this building was uh, nine stories tall. It was on the eighth floor. Uh, most of my fire experience has been private dwelling fires, uh, multiple family mid rise, you know, four or five stories. So I'm going to leave this to the experts tonight, and we have. Uh, Jerry Tracy and Jack Murphy, and uh, of course, Anthony Villa, who worked in the cliffs of, of New Jersey for a while. Um, so these two guys, yeah, the, the cliffs, the cliffs on the Hudson River. And, um, you know, we're going to talk about a new book um, being uh, released by Fire Engineering by Jack Murphy, Jerry Tracy, and uh, James Murtock. Um what a great opportunity for the people who work in the cities to learn, and hopefully people like myself to learn something for the mid-risers. I'm not mm-hmm. going to um, give you a bio on these guys. I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves a little bit, because um, I don't know what they want to share today or how much, because they, their biographies are so long um, that it would take the whole show to, to do it. So, uh, Anthony. How are you tonight? Before I move yeah. on to our two guests, um, I'm good. I'm I'm absolutely like uh, over the moon with uh, the guys we got here tonight. Um, this is uh, going to be a really good show, and uh, I'm actually, as I said, I'm I'm driving right now through the uh, the mountains of Maryland on my way to West Virginia, and I'm doing this from my car, and uh, you know, just so uh, so proud and, and excited to have. Uh, these guys on the show, so, you know, uh, Chief Tracy and, and Chief Murphy, well, welcome to the show. Thank you, yeah, brother. So let's, uh, high-rise buildings, understanding the vertical challenges. So, Jerry, give us a quick introduction of who you are and why you joined forces with these other two guys to uh, write this book. What? I would have preferred you go to Jack first, but... Uh, okay, you... hold on. Jerry, stand by. <laughs> Jack! <laughs> Jack! Age before beauty. Age exactly. before beauty. I, I like that, yeah. I'm the one with the dark hair, Jerry. I know. <laughs> I think you cheat. There's no Irishman that has brown hair at your age. Yeah, exactly. well, I mean, there's no shoe polish at all, guys, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah. My my experiences with the New York City. I, I was a volunteer chief and a, and a career fire marshal in, at Leonia, even though it was a part time job. Uh, I moved into the city in, in '87. Uh, I became the fire safety director at New York Hospital, uh, the Burn Center, which is a, a huge hospital. It's like three blocks long. From there, I went to Citigroup, which I was, which was a nice job. I was a global vice president uh, before cell phones and laptops traveling the world and looking at fire departments globally. Uh, I got heavily involved in the fire safety directors. I just recently left there as the past chairman of that group. I've uh, been very active in the codes, 
uh, both internationally, nationally, and New York City, uh, streamlining a lot of things for high-rises. And, uh, and I run uh, one of the guys that run the FDIC, so I had just a little synopsis of what I do when I'm trying to stay home once in a while. Jerry? Well, in the beginning, uh, Jim was kind enough to say uh, he has a couple of experts here. I don't really refer to myself as an expert. Uh, to tell you the truth, I've been mentored by uh, people that maybe you would call experts, if you will, and I'm just sharing what was given to me to say what brought me together with well, certainly knowing Jack for years now. Uh, very impressed with his knowledge, uh, insights uh, to fire safety, things that he sees that other people don't see, things that he realizes that other people don't realize. And Jim Murta, of course, was a mentor in my career <clears throat> as a staff chief. Uh, he was a chief of training at one time. And, uh, the experiences that he shared uh, has certainly, uh, let's say, given me an education. Uh, wanting to write a book on high-rise, uh, ever since I was a captain, uh, I wanted to write a book. And to tell you the truth, uh, collaborating with both Jim uh, and Jack, evidently it was the right time uh, to collaborate and write a book on this subject because there's a, there's a void, if you will. Uh, in the fire service, uh, things that are available to the fire service, especially in, when people get to really see what's in it, the 12 chapters, the subject matter, how it flows, uh, it, it, it'll be an eye-opener for the fire service, and we hope uh, to building engineers, building owners, managers, architects alike. Uh, so we're pretty uh, proud of the book as well. We can't wait until it's... Great. I'm excited... That's Anthony's to have you guys. And um, I have a question before we get into more details. What do you hope the readers and the students will get from this book? Because like you said, I think this is groundbreaking. And um, what do you hope the reader will get out of this and bring home and hopefully share with their departments when they read your books? Well, to tell you the truth, they're going to get an education on really the history and evolution of building construction and fire policies, procedures, meaning how we do business, how we began to fight fires, how we evolved fighting fires, and that is not just putting the wet stuff on the red stuff, but understanding uh, ventilation, how it helps, how it doesn't help, uh, understanding how, well, let's just say, the restrictions on construction and how things would be built and the materials that they would be built of. If you want to say, fire prevention came about in the days of the Romans. Isn't that right, Jack? The other thing, too, is that, you know, we, we wrote this book in a way that we wanted to be extremely useful as a guide and reference document for these vertical challenges. Uh, we, we broke the book up into three parts. Uh, one is understanding the vertical challenges. The next is command and firefighting unit, unit responses. And the third is the ever-changing skyline. We're, we're going through things now that are rapidly changing drastically. And we wrote it with the intent that you can have tall buildings and be a small town. So we want the reader to be exposed to what we call a comprehensive coverage of a wide range of relevant high-rise topics. Uh, and we boxed in things there to, to entice the reader. One of my forte is that 
we, we deal with NFPA like 13 or 14 and things like that. But now when we write about that in the book, we, we have a, a small box called the code section. And this is what you look for. This is why we go out there and do these things to make the, the buildings a little bit more safer for us in a response. So we're trying to give the reader a comprehensive look at this thing. Uh, and with that, Jerry, why don't you just start off with uh, a couple of chapters, maybe just briefly on one, two, and how about, Jerry, I do one, two, and three, and then you can pick it up, all right? You got it, brother. Sound good, Jack? Cool. Okay. So in, in Chapter 1, what we're talking about basically is the vertical challenges. How did we get here, uh, and what, what was out there? Probably the last comprehensive book, uh, more broad, was, was O'Hagan's that was done in the 70s, on, and, uh, which was a, it's still out there, too. It's, and we referenced that book. We referenced other people who have written high-rise books. And we also reference people uh, who talk about that in their chapters, like Anthony and things like that. We went into building codes and fire codes impacting the environment here. Uh, what's the history of it? How do we best tame the fire environment when you're dealing with non-sprinkled, partial-sprinkled buildings? Uh, my biggest thing here, when we get out to the code development process, everybody wants to trade things off for sprinklers. Well, in high-rise buildings, I, I try to stand back on that. I ain't trading things off in high-rise buildings, all right? If I lose one, one fire protection system, I, I'm relying on the other and we take them through about, we need your involvement in this stuff. Right? It, everybody's relying on the uh, fire marshals or the IFF or the IASP, but what about the departments? You all have a voice in here, and you're not playing the game, and the industry is beating the hell out of us. Uh, another, another section is uh, building construction. All right, We start with steel, concrete. Now we're into modular. And we're going into timber. <laughs> Everybody's talking about that. Uh, and we're talking about uh, building envelopes. You know, they were having problems with cladding on the outside. Uh, I just saw the other day that some of the cladding that they t they want to take out that's flammable on the inside, they want to now replace it with steel of what we call thermal wool. All right, I applaud that a little bit. All right. And we're talking about little, little things, uh, zoning and everything, how people get into that stuff in the area. So we can create these uh, situations that give you more as a reader what everybody is up against in putting these buildings up. It isn't just the fire service. Uh, we're dealing with tight spaces, and then we're coming up with cantilever buildings. Uh, in some of the cities, some of the, in New York City, they're putting a the cantilever over low-rise buildings with exposures to the roof of the low-rise building. Uh, our biggest complex that Jerry and I took on was the, the Hudson Yards. It's like 30-some-odd uh, buildings over like 40 railroad tracks that are in Manhattan. So uh, airspace is, is what I call very, uh, very high, uh, very, very high uh, in demand in, in urban areas. Jerry, you want to pick up on four and five? Sure, but I wouldn't mind making a, a few comments sure. about uh, what you had just talked about, you know, <clears throat> chapter one for itself really was uh, a history, uh, almost uh, going back to the days where it was thought that Chicago and New York were in competition to build the uh, high-rise buildings and how the first steel structures came about. Uh, but yet some of the issues that they ran into uh, with respect to even standpipe systems, uh, there was a fire downtown. Uh, Manhattan, that uh, the Rogers Pete building, uh, the fire had extended into it. They charged the standpipe, and the system failed, 
which brought about really code change and uh, signal strength and or the strength of standpipes and the type of PSI that they should uh, be able to withstand, things like that. So uh, none of that history is really written anywhere, and you'll get it and you'll get a flavor for it in the book. And, of course, uh, Jack speaks about balanced fire protection. Uh, and, yes, we need to know about these codes because, Fire departments, you are the authority having jurisdiction. Uh, it's almost like you can't pay, play Monopoly unless you know the rules. So, in essence, we're talking about that. Building construction, and it's just a simple steel, concrete, your typical uh, building construction book. Now, we go into it a little bit more <clears throat> in depth uh, because steel buildings have failed. If you take a look at building number seven, uh, down at ground zero, why did that building fail? Well, it failed because there was no intervention. And the very fact that, would you believe, buildings are only designed by the codes to last long enough for, for people to evacuate the building. In essence, that's what the codes require. It also goes on to talk about ASTM 119, which is the Society of uh, Materials, and the fact that the ASTM standard on steel and or components to withstand fire is based upon a standard that was written in 1920, and, and it was written for uh, boilers, how long they could withstand heat and fire and uh, still maintain their integrity. And it's archaic, so we'll mention those things. And you have to understand that because we're fighting fires in these buildings, and in some cases, <clears throat> when the people have exited the building and now we're into saving property, where do you want to train your water and why? Uh, so those are the important things. Chapter 4 really goes into uh, protection systems, uh, both active, passive systems. And what does that mean? An active system is something that's going to react to a fire. A passive system is something that's built into the building, the walls, the floors, the ceilings the fire doors, all of those things. Uh, and we have to have an understanding of them because if you talk about uh, active systems, we could even go as far as the dampers that allow smoke to be exhausted off a floor may very well activate based upon a fusible link. Okay? Well, that being said, if you need to exhaust that floor, that means you need a firefighter to open that damper manually with a hook or something like that so you could exhaust the floor. Does anybody know that? Well, you'll know about it when you read the book. Uh, and <laughs> Chapter 5 also goes on to, <clears throat> let's say, protective systems. Uh, chapter 6 is quite uh, interesting because it speaks about travel routes, stairs and elevators. You know, <clears throat> for the most part, high-rise buildings can be castles in the sky. And castles, well, they were built to be lived in and to be protected, protected by warriors that may be attacking within. These, they were built with spiral staircases that uh, warriors entering the castle for war and engagement and battle, let's say, ascend a circular stairway that was designed in a clockwise fashion for the very reason that these warriors coming up the stairs with the wall to their right because it was clockwise, most people on the planet are right-handed. They were designed that way so that right-handed individuals coming up the stairs would not be able to swing their swords at the defenders at the top of those stairs. To say, hmm, 
there was a method in design. Well, we speak about all the methods of design of stairwells in the book, both enclosed stairs, open stairs, access stairs, convenience stairs, tenant stairs, scissor stairs, and how to overcome all of those challenges. So that's things that are not written in so many places as well. Uh, Jack, would you like to speak about Chapter 7? Because I believe it's your chapter. Know before you go. It's your philosophy, Jack. And, and Jerry, you know, uh, we didn't rehearse this, but we'll go back and forth on a few things on the chapters. So let me let me go back to four. And, and here we're talking about the fire command center in a high-rise building. And what what are you going to meet there when you get there besides the fire alarms? You know? All right. Uh, a few years ago, Jerry and I did an IFF video on the fire command center and smoke management in the building. So you need to get into the building to take a look at the fire command center. And the other thing here is the board communication system. How many fire departments have scripts when they, get, when they arrive at the scene? Some buildings deal with voice communications that are automatic. Others are what we call two-way, where uh, the fire safety director gives out the uh, communications. But the idea here is that what do you say when you get there? particularly in an automatic one. The fire departments arrived at the building, were now uh, checked, investigating the smoke detector, went off on the 16th floor. What you're trying to do is give those people in the building some comfort that, that someone of, of expertise is looking at the building. The other thing in these chapters, too, is it will mix up with an appendix on different things, and some of the appendixes might be about uh, the systems itself, uh, basically the standard on the sprinkler standpipe, investigations uh, into high-rises. Lieutenant Jim Davis uh, gave us something on that, particularly on building announcements. Uh, and we also go into lessons learned. Uh, lessons learned, uh, the value of a five-year acceptance test. I, I, I blew a quarter-size hole out in the 27th floor of a high-rise from the test. Based on that, uh, I had to replace, obviously, that riser. And based on that, we went down into the subcellar area, and I x-rayed all the pipes. There were 12-inch pipes. I could barely get my fist through it. I had to take the whole section out. It was built in 50 years ago. So all these things are important in the way of fire detection systems. And Jerry hit on building systems here. You need to know about a building management system. Everything is on uh, solenoids now. Where is that? How can I shut down certain things in the building once you get there? So little things like that. And the other thing, too, is uh, Jerry talked about uh, other systems. We talk about these OEO elevators, these oper operating evacuation elevators. Uh, people can use the elevators to evacuate now in buildings. Then my favorite is the fire service uh, elevator. This is a hard code fight. Uh, if you go into a high-rise residential, the, car, the elevator cars are small. So if you have a company of five firefighters, you might not be able to all get in there We've made the standard elevator going forward in new construction. You can actually take in an eight-foot pipe pole, all right? So you can get a whole company in there. So those are some things you want to look at in, in those. And I will allude now into what Jerry said, if these walls could talk. We can't go into these buildings blind. We have, if we have no information, we're behind the eight ball, you might as well be getting off the truck. So the more you know about it ahead of time, the better off you are. I'm changing my philosophy, and I, I tell people, I, I take the goddamn word, excuse me, pre-planning and pre-incident planning and throw it out the window. It's been out there for years. We've been talking about it since Brannigan. 
And then I don't want to, I don't have time for that. You know, everybody thinks of this. You know, try a target building and work your way around it. But the whole idea here is that you have to have intelligence. What you do, we go to war every day, and Jerry would be talking about battle plans with no information. A SEAL would never do that, and anyone running a platoon would never do that. Then why do we do it all the time? So the whole idea is how to change that mentality, what I call K by G, no before you go mentality, on, on things of that nature. And again here, what's, what's the idea of knowing this? You're going from knowing nothing, what we call guest-based knowledge, into decision-based knowledge. Anthony, you had a fire in uh, the galaxy, all right? The galaxy is like Duffy said, it's on the cliff. Well, when you come off the top of the cliff, you go into the lobby, I believe uh, the lobby is on the 18th floor. The fire comes in on 10. Now, what does that feel like getting into the elevator and you, and you have control of it? You hit the 10th floor button and you're going down. So those are little things here that the more you know about the building, the better off you are. And the whole idea is that taking a look at that, taking the intelligence, what Jerry's going to talk about later, make it into battle plans. Mm. So basically the essence yeah. of the Wolf to talk is, is, is something that uh, hits home. Go ahead, Ann. Uh, Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Jerry. Well, well uh, if, if you, this is Anthony here. If you look at the galaxy, you're absolutely right. Galaxy is three towers connected by two smaller uh, 15 or 16 story buildings mm-hmm. and uh, if we have a fire on it on the 10th floor and you know and say tower 2 we wouldn't even utilize tower 2 to access the fire we would utilize one or three take the elevators down there are crossovers in the intermediate buildings we would then come in and come up from underneath and the only way you knew if you were in a different building is the rug color changes but we, we did a lot of pre-planning. We had some very bad fires in that building, um, fatal fires. And, uh, you know, the, you're right. The, the only way that you really can maneuver around those buildings is to have intelligence. Yeah. You know, Jack and I were having a conversation, and it was after uh, an interview with Neil Cavuto and uh, the chairman of the National uh, Transportation Safety Board, whereas, uh, the woman, she's a female, I can't remember her name at the moment, <clears throat> but she mentioned intelligence for first responders. And Jack and I, our conversation was, you know what, uh, the government uh, could look at this and say they could help the fire service in total by uh, coming up with programs that could provide us intelligence and Let's just take a look at, and I'd like to recognize again uh, this hero firefighter that uh, was killed line of duty in Buffalo. You know, Buffalo may be a city that really doesn't have a budget that uh, could allow or afford their firefighters to go out all the time and inspect buildings and things like that. But the very building uh, that this firefighter was killed in because of a collapse, uh, more than likely they should have put in a permit uh, alterations or renovations or even the repairs that they needed to, uh, let's say, perform in the rear building, the rear building that had collapsed, because that building had been vacant for some years. A new owner bought it. He was now renovating it. Uh, but yet you take a look at that building, and it has structural warning signs, the rear of the building, uh, let's say the two, three-corner 
things like that. In other words, this building had issues. The Buffalo Fire Department should have known about those issues. Every firefighter responding first to should have realized or been informed. Building intelligence, know before you go, that there was compromise. We used to put markings on uh, the outside of vacant buildings to say you could. Uh, there's holes and things like that, or don't go in this building at all. Well, there should have been some intelligence on that particular building uh, for, let's say, the commitment of firefighters for a uh, heavy fire uh, is just one thing. Uh, so, yes, uh, where Jack is going with building intelligence at some point in time, you know, we talk about pre-fire plans, uh, pre-incident planning, all hazard planning. For the most part, much of that is static information. Yes, and what Anthony just mentioned was, that uh, certain uh, floors of the building you should access from a clean building come across because those things are available. Battle plans are a little bit different in that they give you that static information, but based upon where a fire is located, knowing the fuel load, knowing the size, uh, you can put tactics, if you will, into a battle plan, known tactics based upon a condition, whether it be a minor fire, we call it level one, two, or three. Uh, and that is really the, the basis of battle plans going in. Yeah. And the, the thing that I looked at, gentlemen, was I, I looked at the National Fire Academy on command, con, command and control class. And dealing with uh, uh, wild back was Billy Shodis, a retired deputy out of uh, Philly. And he, and he said, Jack, we're dealing with QAPs. I said, what the heck is that? Said, Those are quick action plans. And once he gave me that thought process, I, I took a look at of uh, I don't like uh, uh, what I call information overload, big data. So how do we make it manageable for the incident commander? All right, first, first to that individual, you know, who's overwhelmed uh, in the beginning, particularly if you don't have an aid these days. All right, you, you can't be giving in this information uh, uh, right away. But it's it's something when the what ifs happen, and if you know the what ifs. It doesn't say if you know intelligence ahead of time, the company office can have a better understanding. So can the firefighters. The whole idea here is that to break those things down, and some of these things you can read in 30 to 60 seconds, uh, particularly for deploying personnel. What do I get going out of the door every day? That's, that's another thing. The other thing I looked at, too, is that this is your district, District 1. You're on, you have a second or third alarm. And District 5 is now coming in, same city. They know nothing about the building. Now you go and you have a bigger alarm. Now you have mutual aid companies in. They're lucky they know the streets. So the whole idea, if you have intelligence as a, as a, as a what they call them, database, it will work for the betterment of all. All right? And I said before, I saw the word out pre-planning, pre-incident. I didn't tell you what I replaced it with. It's replaced <laughs> with recon. Go into the building and do your recon. You get the recon, you gather intelligence, and then you have something to help you with the battle plan. If it's a fire, you know, it has a threat or something else. So that's just section one, folks, part one. Okay, I'll let Jerry uh, start us off on part two, which is command and firefighting unit response. Go ahead, Jeff. Well, Chapter 8 takes us there. Uh, it takes us into the world of an incident commander. And quite frankly, of course, we speak about uh, the incident command system and things like that. But yet things and the collaboration of Jim Murtaugh had uh, brought about some concepts that 
I wasn't aware of or never thought of. Uh, you know, the incident command system is the who and what. Jim brings, and we introduce into the book, incident process system, IPS, is the how and when, beyond the who and what. Uh, and really, the system, as units arrive, the system really should fall into place, if you will. It shouldn't be a case that units are waiting for an incident commander to arrive and uh, start issuing instructions. No, the book in the beginning certainly takes you through, <clears throat> uh, let's say, the ventilation profile of a building, which means the internal air movements, external air movements, things that you can expect. And units, let's say, respond to the problem. Of course, they don't do that without building intelligence. They go to an alarm panel, they check that out. Uh, it gives them information based upon building systems, which we spoke about in the earlier chapters, uh, that the HVAC system is shut down. It's not going to be uh, spreading smoke throughout the building. Elevators are accounted for. Announcements have been made. We've received information uh, possibly from, uh, let's say, the occupants in the building. If it's a, a mixed-use and or commercial, we may not get that information from uh, residential occupants, but in any event, how to approach the fire and what level of fire we can expect and how we should really be uh, approaching those fires, meaning with a tactic, a tactic that, that's appropriate. But it also goes into this, the decision-making process. In essence, an incident commander is a tactician that is engaged in a chess game that's three-dimensional because we're placing units and resources on many floors for the function of many for fire and life safety, meaning uh, mitigate the fire and or the emergency, uh, take care of people, take care of smoke, where is smoke going, and how to deploy units to those areas. Uh, and it also speaks of, let's say, the emotions of an incident commander, uh, that they should not, uh, let's say, take away from his responsibility and his thought and his thought process. So I found uh, Chapter 8 a rather interesting chapter, and I'm sure you did too as well, Jack. Yes, I, you know, we did. I did also, you know, and again, one of the things we wanted to hit on too is bringing back the support for a Q's aid and how vital that is. All right, I know some towns have gone away with it, but some towns it's not starting to bring that back. Jerry and I and Jim we discussed bringing something added to the commands there. We're looking at an intelligent, an incident intelligent fire officer. And here, if you look at NFPA 1521, a safety officer, they're talking about his prerequisite knowledge. It was about building intelligence, data. Well, where are they getting that from? The whole idea is that as, you, as this gets to be a big thing, trying to take some burden off the incident commander. And this intelligent officer can now deal with the building, what we're calling the building intelligent rep. In my world, it's called the fire director. In a lot of other worlds, it's called the building engineer. You're trying to pick their brains as this incident is unfolding and help you work out around situations in the building, particularly when you're dealing with, the, with all these building systems. So we're introducing that as a new concept uh, into the incident uh, management system, but it is the process that's out there. We utilize it, but we need to define it a little bit more. And the other thing hmm. we talked about in this chapter was evacuation modes. 
Well, in the high-rise office building, uh, I do in-building relocation. I've been doing that for years. Uh, in New York City, at one time, it was just the, floor, the fire floor and the floor below. Now it's the three floors, one above, one below. In other parts of the United States, it's five. That's in-building relocation. Then along comes all the threats after 9-11, all these all hazards. And I'm dealing with a lot more uh, evacuation modes. The high-rise building, no matter what, was never designed to be evacuated. Uh, if it was, the, the staircases and the, uh, and the doors at the bottom would be as wide as, like, Madison Square Garden, uh, you know, 12 feet wide uh, staircases coming down with banisters in the middle and eight to ten doors at the bottom. You're dealt with a 36-inch stairwell with one door. And every time people are coming down, if you're evacuating more floors, we go into what we call a stop-gap method. Uh, Jim, uh, Anthony, you know what that is? Tell me, sir. Yeah. Every time that you open the door up onto the floor, off the floor, onto the stairwell, those people who are above that door have to stop. So now if I'm evacuating several floors, that's a stop-gap method. And shortly after 9-11, we come up with things of how to fully evacuate these buildings using all stairs, all elevators, and things like that, how to mix it up because you can't use them. So you have to know four different evacuation modes. And we call right. it TIPS, total, total building, in-building relocation, a partial evacuation of the building, drop five floors, go outside, and shelter in place in some parts of the country to use the remaining place. Now, is the threat inside or outside? You have to figure that out. Now, these are all situation awareness stuff because the fire alarm panel don't go off. So you've got to grab something to make these actions work. And then once you do that, is that, okay, how do I evacuate? I can use all elevators, all stairs. Great. Uh, I can only use a stair that, uh, stairway that goes to the street. I'm down to that. So the idea here is that you have to have an understanding a lot more about these buildings, particularly when we're dealing with these, these off-the-wall, off-hazard threats. So those are some of the things in, just in the command section there. Uh, Jerry, you want to take up on nine? Well, before we move on to nine, Go ahead, you know, uh, high-rise events, as Jack just mentioned, they don't necessarily have to happen inside the building. Uh, they could be exterior of the building. Uh, New York City has experienced, let's say, steam explosions in the street and or Let's say uh, a collapse uh, across the street, uh, a jump crane at a construction site uh, falls off mm. the building uh, because of, uh, let's say, uh, a mistake with the iron workers. And uh, the mast of that jump crane uh, crashes into a building across the street. We had the Condé Nast collapse, which is the Condé Nast high-rise building. It's on uh, Broadway from 41st to 42nd Street when it was under construction. It had a uh, scaffold 51 stories tall, whereas uh, the scaffold had uh, been compromised and it failed at about the 21st floor. Uh, and the, the tip of the mast to the elevator, if you will, the passenger elevator for the workers, uh, about 100 feet of it broke off and it, it toppled off and pierced the roof of a hotel across the street, the Woodstock Hotel. Uh, aye, aye, you as an incident commander and first two units, where do you want to start? In other words, the scope of your problem. Uh, an incident commander, if uh, like that jump crane, when it uh, crashed, it uh, uh, involved buildings for three blocks during of that. 
uh, and the IPS system. Uh, so chapter nine from chapter eight. Chapter nine is company Jerry, unit response. Jerry, yes, I, I, Jerry, I want to stop you before you move on. We talked a little bit about command. Um, how, now I'm going to talk large scale, high rises. How yes. do you break, sector it up, or how do you break it up? I mean, you obviously have a lobby control unit. Where else do you have command officers throughout? Let's make a building 30 stories. So what, how Excellent. do you break up your command to handle it or decentralize your command to handle that? an excellent question uh and many departments if you will will sector every floor in the building and make it a division okay uh let's say the fire is on the 10th floor they'll refer to who's ever the ranking officer uh as the 10th division to command well in our book we sort of if you will dn1 and the fire floor, floor below, and floor above is going to be referred to as the fire sector. If, in fact, it's an emergency, we'll call it the emergency sector. But one chief or one senior officer in the beginning will be fire, uh, fire sector command or fire sector. Command will be in the lobby. Initially, that's going to be the first unit to arrive. That could be a lieutenant, a captain. Uh, we do not profess that someone should stay in the lobby to brief that, uh, that chief as he arrives because that can be done over a radio. Uh, there are some departments that uh, prefer commanding their operation from a vehicle out or a command vehicle that could also be outside. It could be down the block. Well, not to be facetious, I would say do not spend $200,000 or $300,000 on a command vehicle if that's how you're going to run your fire from down the block. Save that money and buy very good radios, and you could command this fire from headquarters. You think I'm kidding around? Because you're going to get all your information secondhand. All your information is coming secondhand from in the building, whether it be someone in the lobby giving you the information that's on the fire panel or the unit that's up on the fire floor. That incident commander needs to be in the lobby, and, of course, we'll talk about uh, those firefighters in Arizona that evidently suffer from negative stack, and the lobby could get smoked out. Well, buy some good fans, and you could pressurize the lobby, and you can keep that smoke out of the lobby. We're in that lobby because, we, yes, we want to be next to that fire command control center. We want to look at the, the status of the building systems. We would like... Uh, to be able to possibly have remote controls to, let's say, uh, pressurizing zones, exhausting zones, looking at the status of elevators, having communications that we can both communicate in the building one way, two way. All of those resources need to be at the hand of the incident commander as well as building intelligence. And we're also Amen, going to talk brother. about the future, the future of building intelligence, where one day an incident commander and or first uh, due officer could walk in that building with uh, some sort of a smartphone, could scan a Q code and gain access to, let's say, the building management system and or all the other systems they can look at the status on their phone. They could look at floor plans up in the building and knowing which quadrant 
Justify is located in, A, B, C, D, going around the clock. If it was a square or rectangular building, uh, if I knew what quadrant uh, the alarm or fire was located in, my battle plan will tell me which attacks there would be the closest one to the fire. All of these things we talk about in Chapter 9. Every unit, engine, trucks, special units, squad units, and all other support units. Like, Jim, you just spoke of a lobby control unit. Yes. Yep. A unit could be designated lobby control, be an engine or a truck. It could be on the matrix of response. There could be a ventilation support group that when they arrive, they pressurize the stairwells to keep them smoke-free for civilians and firefighters. Smoke is the greatest enemy. More people die of smoke than they do of fire. And if we're not going out there, if we don't have, a, if the stairwells are not pressurized with a fixed system, then we should be taking care of that. Mm-hmm. Gary, would you highlight a little, Gary? Would you highlight yes. a little on the, the uh, determining the, the condition levels of tenability, fire, and smoke that we developed, one, two, and three? Oh, absolutely, and thank you, thank you for asking that. <clears throat> and we came up with, let's say, a level of fire, tenability, and and smoke condition, if you will, obscurity. The levels of this, and for the reason being, you could say that you could have a young officer that spent most of his career in, let's say, a rural suburban uh, area, uh, and when they arrive and they come to their first fire in an office building and there's a smoke condition, <laughs> their definition, young officer, their definition of, let's say, a heavy smoke condition compared to a seasoned firefighter who's been in that arena for a long time their definition may be 180 degrees out of phase. So we came up with a system. It could be a level one, two, or three fire. Level one, it could be extinguished with a hand extinguisher or the use of one hand line, but yet the smoke condition is such that we would say it's not going to extend beyond that space. It tells everybody the smoke condition and the incident commander is not going to extend beyond the space and conditions are such uh, that a person could survive, we're going to remove them, but it's it's somewhat tenable. A level two fire, on the other hand, oh, let me back up. If it requires the stretching of one hand line, it's a guarantee, it's a given, a backup line will be coming for the very reason that it's not a perfect world, that first line could uh, burst, things could happen to it. So if we're stretching one line, of course, it's always going to be two. A level two fire is a fire that's going to require the extinguishment of two hand lines. And it tells everybody on the fire ground it's going to infiltrate past the space. It's going to communicate into other areas of the building. And you're going to require full PPE. And, of course, a civilian would not survive in this area without personal protective equipment. Whereas the level three fire, we're going to have smoke throughout the building. We have tremendous fire. It's going to require the extinguishment of, and flow of master streams. Master streams. So we wanted to come up with a standard. Uh, and based upon those conditions and the location of the fire, again, battle plans uh, would give you a, an attack there, an evacuation there, and also give a, an incident commander, let's say, uh, some instructions and introduction on 
how to manage smoke because there's the incident command, there's responsibility for smoke management control, period. You know, I, I love that, that, that level thing. That is brilliant. That could, like, whether you got, you know, uh, companies responding or you got a New York City response, that just tells you so much about, you know, what it is you have to do, you know, like, you know, either, you know, ratchet down the friggin' insanity or know that you're going to have something that if you're not controlling it, it's going to be insanity, you know? Yeah. So, oh, my God, mm-hmm. so, so, so brilliant, boys, so brilliant. Bravo. Thank you. Yeah, I hope people. You know, I hope people are reading this. I hope yeah. so too. And it, it's only through this collaboration, uh, you know, that we sat down, uh, we talked. Uh, did we always agree on things? No, we agreed on a lot of things, uh, but we also needed to come to a compromise on well, how is this going to work? And you know what? In the end, uh, I believe we come up with a, a good product. Yeah. I'm oh, going to ask like another. I have another question along the same lines. Accountability. Again, these are, to me, again, suburban firefighter. This, to me, is, is could be overwhelming very quickly if you don't have a good handle and a good command system. I'm going to talk about accountability. So you have fire, your fire or your emergency in charge of the three floors up on the 30th floor. Now you send people up to that floor. How is, should that be accounted for in the lobby, or how is, should that be managed in a high-rise building? Sending, I'm sending a truck company and two engine companies to the fire. How do you pass them off, or, or where is the, the accountability kept, at the lower levels or on the fire level, or both? Jack, would you like me to answer that? Yeah, go ahead, Jack. Thank you, brother. <clears throat> okay. Uh, let's just say the handoff, if you will, uh, from the first officer to now the chief. Uh, and quite frankly, uh, nowadays uh, you can get a printout uh, when you're turned out the door. Uh, you may get a printout from your vehicle, uh, mobile data terminal. That printout will give that incident commander at least the initial units that are on the alarm. Uh, and when that chief arrives, and uh, it's either a briefing face-to-face because they haven't left the lobby yet or they're in transit, uh, that chief will certainly makes note of who went where and for what reason. Uh, when the, let's say, fire sector is established, that would be the second-to-arriving chief. Uh, that chief would be, you know, uh, given a briefing as well, uh, would know which units are up there when they arrive, uh, check the status of those units, not only the status of the units, the status of what they've been able to find out and accomplish and or what they're engaged in. Uh, if they, let's say, started stretching lines because they found the fire right away. Uh, but in any event, uh, then the fire sector is also keeping account, an account, if you will, and who they are. That's one thing. But is anybody paying attention to how long they're on air? Because you're only going yep. to expect them to last about 10 minutes, and you better have the resources to, one, go in and relieve them if their job isn't done yet. Nobody talks about that. And that's really time-pacing. The incident commander in the lobby's time-pacing. 
the fire sector uh, supervisor is time pacing because they need the resources to one keep up the effort, whatever it is. Now there are other sectors that will be established as well, uh, right after the fire sector and in our world, if you will, uh, two engines demand the first line. That's the resources of firefighter and officers to man and assist getting the first line in place. Two more engines to get the second line in place. Office buildings, because of the floor plate can be so good, we deploy two ladder trucks for search and rescue on that floor. One ladder unit, another additional, goes to the floor above. They don't go to the floor above until they speak to the units on the fire floor to find out exactly the location of the fire. Because when they arrive on the floor above, they're going to that location immediately. Because you want to know if you have fire extension now and not later. If I have fire extension now and they say, Chief, uh, or fire sector supervisor, we need a line up here now because we have fire extension. What do you think? That line's going to materialize out of thin air? No. You need resources to get that in place as well. So all of these challenges are spoke about and how to think about, how to forecast, and how incident commanders can think in that vein to, one, have the units available. If you have to transmit a, a higher alarm, you should know that because you know your staffing levels, uh, you, you know your capabilities. Now, above the fire sector, there will be another, it's called the evacuation, and uh, a chief and or officer would be, uh, let's say, in charge of that, and that would be searching all the floors above the fire sector. Mm -hmm. uh, and then if this is going to be a prolonged operation, we'll establish a forward staging. Forward staging is set up below the fire sector, and forward staging has resources and equipment, and that could be bottles because we do not have, uh, let's say, fire air replenishment systems in high-rises, which we should. The fire service should be fighting for these things. It's a standby yes. system with air that can uh, replenish bottles. Uh, and right below uh, the staging area of firefighters and resources of equipment is a triage area for both civilians and firefighters. And... Uh, the next floor down is a rehab area for firefighters to rehab. We do not want them to see the firefighters yeah. in triage, nor do we want the firefighters in staging to see the firefighters that are coming down beat up because that might give them a little anxiety, if you will. <laughs> and, and the other thing, too, Jerry, the higher up you go, you might have to put in two forward staging areas, particularly if you start losing the elevators. And the other thing we looked at, too, is a decon sector. You know, uh, can I use some place in the building to decon uh, our equipment, our gear and everything? Jerry and I looked at loading dock area, maybe a, 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 a below garage area, things like that, particularly when you have inclement weather and that stuff. So these are all the things we looked at into, into adding into that, into the uh, chapter nine. Even restrooms, if you will, because they may have drains in the floor. Yeah. Uh, we could decon our firefighters in the building itself. But all of that could be looked at when in gathering building intelligence and be placed in the battle plan. Absolutely. Awesome. You know, um, so uh, here's a question because, you know, not everybody's New York City or Chicago or anything like that. Um, and I push this as much as possible um, when, when I teach at the fire academy. Um, 
interagency SOP that uh, mm-hmm. that all the departments that are going to want, like like I sort of am trying to push a common high-res SOP for Monmouth County. If they get something in Asbury Park or they get something in Keyport, you know they're going to have, a, you know, departments from all over the place. We say, okay, so you pull up on the scene, you're the first arriving engine, this is what you do. You're second, this is what you do. You're third, this is what you do. First arriving chief, second arriving chief, first ladder. You know, it's so important because, it, you know, first of all, they don't have the resources to fight the fire themselves. But, again, if it's not a level one, uh, but the other end of it is when the other companies come in, it, it, the fight, it should get better, but it, yeah. it doesn't. It gets worse, you know. And yeah. this is one of the things that we sort of addressed in North Hudson. Even before we regionalized, we, we sort of were working on a, uh, a common high-rise SOP because we knew that we weren't going to fight this thing alone. And, you know, I, I think does, does the book cover, like, like that kind of stuff? What, what does a small department do to organize their high-rise, uh, you know, firefighting operation? Yeah. Uh- Anthony, one one of the things you looked at, and I, I, Jerry, uh, help me out on this one. I, we we talked about small small towns, big buildings, and we mm. took the approach of looking at what do I do. And, and uh, Anthony, you know where I came from, East Bergen. You know, yeah. uh, right at right at the bridge there, the George Washington Bridge. Jim, if you don't know, we, we're on the cliffs again too. So uh, yeah, where are you doing Fort Lee? So we had ten towns. So we put together, Anthony, I'll share with you later, we put together a fourth alarm assignment for work and fire, knowing that we needed personnel, we needed people. Who goes to staging at the building? Who goes to staging at the firehouse? At the same time on the fourth alarm, I'm reaching out to the next mutual aid group. I know they're 30 to 40 minutes away. So the whole idea is that you hit the nail right on the head. We talked about that. When Jerry and I were teaching down in Florida, uh, Kit Worley, he said, my ladder truck's 20 minutes away. What? So the whole idea is that we're trying to say this ain't New York Central, it ain't big city central. It's every community. And the whole idea is, yeah. and again, I emphasized before, intelligence. Now you have intelligence for your department, the covering uh, units and the mutual aid group. So uh, I'll work with you on that, Anthony. I'll, I'll send you something. Well, not only yeah, that, we also, we also I, I, mentioned I, I, in the book how – uh, let's say Los, Los Angeles area uh, had formed a regional response group, uh, whereas they've collaborated with 31 departments, have gotten together, come up with a standard SOP uh, for operations. Uh, we could talk specific of high rises, of course, uh, but also for training, training uh, in the response of high rises. And to say 31 departments, that was L.A., City, L.A. County, Glendale, uh, Long Beach, uh, all the big dogs, and uh, many other small departments. So that's a must, and I'm glad you asked that question, Anthony. Yeah, that was yeah, a question I was going to Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jack. No, it's okay. I was thinking the same questions again. I started my firefighting career in Minio on Long Island, very small. In the last year, they built two 11-story buildings, 100% um, protected by volunteer fire service. And they're starting to form up a a great mutual aid system like automatic aid, which I think is happening real, really well. Are there things in 
in your book, and I think you kind of led to that after Anthony's question, to help these departments like that. Um, hopefully the buildings they're building today have better fire protection systems than years ago where you'd have an eight-story building with no internal fire protection system other than an alarm. What happens in a community with mid-rises and low-rises that don't have standpipe systems? Um, is there anything in your book talking about doing high-rise stretches or mid-rise stretches, like an eight-story stretch uh, using fire escapes or anything like that, or is that should be covered in a separate subject? Jack, Ed? No, okay, that's yours, Jerry. <laughs> you think oh, you yeah. things in the Bronx more than me. <laughs> no, yeah, right, much like the Bronx. Much like the Bronx. <laughs> yeah, well, let's put it this way, Jim. And a good question. So you speak about low-rise. And you mentioned low-rise that may not have uh, uh, standpipe systems. Well, let's put it this way. Uh, it, it's really based upon uh, sometimes not so much the height of the building, it may also be the area of a building that may require, uh, let's say, standpipe hookups and things like that, access to the building. Uh, so that really was covered in the code section. But I really like your question for the very fact that, <clears throat> okay, uh, I live on Long Island myself. You can oh, go to many low-rise buildings that are not even four stories tall, and you enter the building, uh, just go into a doctor. You walk in their occupancy, there's a waiting room. And behind that waiting room is a hallway and a maze of small rooms. Uh, and there even could be oxygen canisters uh, and tanks in these rooms and other uh, hazardous materials. And it's a hand stretch from, if you will. Now, where's your water source? And uh, Is the water source in the parking lot? Or do you have to... Uh, let's say pull an engine in, work off tank water, hand stretch into the building, and request an augmentation to your pump. All of these things are things that building intelligence is going to give you, a battle plan will give you, and it's not a typical stretch into a private dwelling. Uh, nope. it, it could be a maze of offices and small rooms and things like that. So there in Chapter 9, uh, if you will, uh, stretching hose lines, uh, how to stretch hose lines, how to lead out uh, and get assistance, bends and turns. Uh, all of that is spoken about in Chapter 9. Awesome. Yeah. The, the, awesome, yeah, awesome. The other awesome. thing you, you're looking at, too, uh, Jim and Anthony, a lot of these communities are dealing with what Jerry and I are calling ground scrapers. All right. These are buildings <laughs> that go on for 400, 500 feet. All right. They're a, they're a they're horizontal sideways. high run. Yeah. yeah. Look at look at all the lightweight timbers, the lightweight wood you have going up with the trusses. Look how big they are, right? Yeah. And they're a maze of buildings. Uh, I'm dealing with a building around my new area now. It's an old warehouse. It's 600 feet on one side. It's L-shaped, 250 on the other. And I have 196 apartments here. 79 on one floor. You look down the hallway, you think you, you, you're at a football game trying to get into the other end zone. They're not so, compartmentalized either, right? No. Oh, sprinkles are here, go, guys. Sprinkles are here. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Not the voids, though, right? <laughs> right. You know, it's heavy timber, but it, it, 
but again, intelligence. It's three stories heavy timber. They put out a penthouse. It's coal form steel. The whole framework. So you can't read that from the outside. No. Right? And the other thing I'm dealing with, some of these apartments, you can't access off the first floor. You have to go around on the seaside. There are only uh, apartments mm-hmm. with offshoot buildings attached, all right, that only access from, from the uh, outside. So if you pull up to the fire alarm panel and it says uh, apartment 103, what the hell is that? You've you got to go yeah, around yeah. the building. <laughs> We have a lot yeah. of that on our waterfront where you come into the lobby, yeah. and the only thing in the yeah. lobby is the elevators. Everything right. else, all the access and the standpipes are either on the, the Bravo or Delta side or, or in the parking lot in the back. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 It, 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 yeah. The other thing Jerry and I are talking about in gym are, are depth scrapers. What the hell is that? <laughs> that's, that's a six- or seven-story building below grade. Yep. Mm. That's occupied. Now, how does that, where does the elevator get recalled? Up. Yeah. What Take a look. Built into yeah. Take a look yeah. at the clip. Yeah, and a lot. 9-11 Museum. 9-11 Museum is a death scraper. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I imagine there's a good deal of those in New York. I'm not sure about too many, many other places, unless you're dealing with buildings on cliffs and stuff, you know, like where yeah. we have, <laughs> where, you know, like the well, galaxy, we, where yeah. you come in on the 18th floor. I think the Sydney Opera House we looked at is five or six below grade. Wow. Mexico City, was, uh, Mexico City was uh, considering a depth scraper, right, in uh, the heart of uh, the city. And uh, so, is, so is Japan. No. Wow. Wow. Crazy. Yeah, I know. Good wow. stuff. And they, so, this is why we call them vertical challenges, no matter which way they go. You know, and the horizontals yeah. are a little bit different. It's three stories. You think you don't have an issue, but you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in mm-hmm. Chapter 10, we talk, we're going to talk about a little bit about these challenges. And we, we hit home a lot on these. Uh, when it raises ugly head after 9-11, these all hazard threats, whether it's man-made, you know, utility failures, uh, mm. you know, Systems going down, chemical releases. I obviously active shooter. One of the one of the things in my classes at John Jay when when I was teaching fire safety directors, and I, I had to teach some active shooter scenarios in the lobby. I gave them homework. The homework is when you come back to the next class, tell me where your duck and cover is. That's that's your first mm. thing. What's your duck and cover? How do you make announcements? Mm. What do you mean? Well, yeah. you, that's the only voice communications in the building. If I lose that, what do mm. I have? We're trying to push secondary systems now. It's in the code, but you've got to put the secondary system not on, t- on, the, on the floor above the immediate panel. Put it in a room somewhere. Maybe put it in the basement. All right? So th- these are right. other things we're looking at at the same time. Uh, and in Chapter 10, we only picked on four occupancies, right, Jeff? <laughs> Obviously, what we call the bread and butter fires, office buildings. I'll just go over the generic topics, uh, residentials, hotels, and hospitals. So, Jerry, you want to mm. start us off with uh, office? Well, let me ask you this, Jack. Did we speak yeah. about uh, urban hubs? No, in other I words, think that's, that's coming in the 11 or 12. Yes? Uh, oh, you want to do it here? Do it here, Jim. Well, uh, mixed occupancy is a building similar to, yeah, uh, if you will. Gotcha. 
Time Warner building, yes? Yes. And that is a, a business enterprise as a mixed occupancy. But yet we also spoke about mixed occupancies being academic institutions, mm-hmm. meaning campuses, whereas you'll have dormitories, but you'll have, uh, uh, you know, classroom uh, buildings. You'll also have labs. Uh, you may also have a theater. Uh, and then we spoke about <clears throat> mixed occupancies being urban hubs uh, in that you'll have possibly many high-rise buildings uh, with a large courtyard in the center. But underneath these high-rise buildings is all the needs that those people that live in those buildings, their needs of one doors for food, uh, daycare, uh, possibly schools, possibly medical care. Uh, you know, yeah. we're not talking long-term hospitals, things like that. Uh, and their distance to their workplace uh, could be, let's say, mass below those buildings. So we speak about all of those things. But, yes, we start off <clears throat> with, let's say, the most common response for a high-rise fire is going to be in a residential building. Mm-hmm. Of course, we then go into all, let's say, the responsibilities of each different unit and how they can work work together, if you will, as teams. Uh, and those sectors that uh, those teams would be operating and working in and the information we would expect from those teams. Then we go off uh, certainly next to office buildings and the large arena that they could pose in that now if you have a large uncompartmented area, uh, you could incur uh, traveling fires. Not too many people speak about them. There's a couple of white papers written on them. Uh, Paul Grimwood, uh, who's a Ph.D., uh, he was a former firefighter with the London Fire Brigade. He's now with Kent Fire and Rescue. Uh, what a brilliant man. He speaks about them because he, t- he takes a look at uh, the fire that occurred in the first interstate building uh, in Los Angeles, if you will. That right. fire traveled three feet per minute. There was a fire in Chicago in the Cook County Administration Building, uh, and the test, uh, recreated test, if you will, for both heat release rate and rate of travel in time, that fire traveled seven feet in a minute. But in the book, we speak about the research that says these fires are not going to travel in a straight direction. It's going to be based upon fuel geometry, space geometry, uh, let's say the ventilation, internal air flows on that floor. Uh, so you'll get quite an education. It goes uh, quite in-depth. And, and then, of course, hospitals. If it wasn't for Jack, I don't think there's anything written on hospitals uh, that could compare to Jack's knowledge uh, on right. where units should go and all the dangers. Jack, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the, the, you know, the hospitals, are, you know, no matter which one you have in your area, you know, if it's a single building, it's built two compartments, you know, say north-south, and they call it defend in place. The whole idea here is that with these hospitals, you have multiple entrances to this. Who's meeting and greeting you there? And when you get there, what type of information you had? I, I told you before I dealt with a complex that was three city blocks long. Uh, I had 12 fires, fire alarm zones. At one time, uh, we, we had uh, uh, one response, go to 68th Street, all right, meet 70th Street in York Avenue. Security guard runs outside and says, go two blocks south, make a left. So <laughs> what we did when we modernized the fire alarm system, we put in four, at that time, four 
five municipal trips, she had at least a cluster of buildings. Mm-hmm. Taking a look at that, you're looking at where all the fire fire walls in the building, mm-hmm. uh, fire protection systems. There were 26 mm-hmm. gentlemen, 26 FDC connections. Wow. When I first got this, when I first got there, I called the the sign above the signees an alphabet. In building A, B, C, D, F, G, blah, blah, blah. I, I said to them, what address are we at? What do you mean? What's the address of this building, this complex right here? There's six buildings. Let's put the address down here. I don't need to know all these buildings, so I got a variance on that. So, again, knowledge in helping, you know, the local companies and everything. My thing was mm. I'm next to the 59th Street Bridge. I'm getting companies coming over because the, the 10th Battalion's on a, on a third alarm. They don't know what building they're at. At least I give them the address. They know that they hit the right spot. So little things like that. Then, then you go into unique things, medical systems. <laughs> you know, we talk about plumbing and everything, uh, cryogenic yeah. oxygen, nitrous oxide systems for the ORs, uh, hazardous materials all over the place. You, it, it's like m- mind-boggling where this stuff is. Uh, things like medical equipment. We know about X-rays. How about Everybody knows MRIs. Does anybody know what a LINAC accelerator is? It doesn't it's sound good. Cancer. The wall, yeah, the sound walls like are like, yeah, the walls are like four feet thick, gentlemen, four feet, and the door is about uh, about 18 inches thick. All right, and now if you get a, a patient trapped in there because it's the uh, you lost both the power and the secondary power. How do you get them out of there? So all these things that you look at in the hospital, uh, we wanted to make useful for everybody. Again, a lot of these things in dealing with basically in what I call incipient brigade people, uh, I did some live drills uh, with the fire department locally in the city and in Bergen County. Uh, one of the things I said to the guys, once they stretched the hose, how many buildings you go through? What do you mean? I said, well, every door you open up on that floor, you went into another building. So you're going to have to look at the nearest uh, stamp uh, pipe riser in that stairwell. So you try to keep it to that one compartment. You just expose four compartments. So all these right. little things, all right, we bring out yeah. in the book to help everybody. So, uh, and Jerry hit a little bit on the mixed occupancies and everything. And, uh, and again, here we go a lot more into detail here about and, and profess about uh, all hazard threats, particularly in high-rises of office buildings, uh, re-emphasizing the, like we said before, interior-exterior events, uh, that tip hazard again, and transportation modes, and I picked on that. That was Jim Murtaugh's uh, buzzword. All, of, uh, all elevators, all stairs, all stairs, only stairs leading directly to the public way, and uh, stairwell uh, crowded uh, of crowded stairwells. The thing here is that, uh, and part of my training is I, I trained people that you left at one staircase. What do you mean you left with? The second staircase is the lobby. The lobby's compromised. The elevator's around. Now where do you go? And the other thing, too, is when you're dealing with these all-hazard threats, no one says I have to stay in a rated stairwell. It's not a fire. So I, I would train them to go stay in the stairwell, go down to the basement, follow the car through, go to the access there, uh, at the other end, goes up one flight, go out the loading dock. So those are all the things that we're trying to bring in here that go beyond fire. And all the threats, that, like I said, we're dealing with more and more today, particularly the active shooter stuff. That stuff is all over the page. So that, that's basically the the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the four 
our tendencies we did this time, and version two will we'll work on something else. So, well, under residential, we also uh, uh, bring to the fore hotels. Yeah, if you oh, think yeah, about yeah, sorry. Right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, So hotels, <clears throat> if you would look at their designation, they would be a designated residential. But let's look at reality. There's many industrial processes going on in some hotels, such as they process their own laundry on site. Yeah. You could consider the kitchens uh, because they're feeding ballrooms. It's an industrial kitchen. Uh, there's swimming pools. Uh, there's chemicals. Uh, there's mm-hmm. all kinds of uh, issues with people that are transient and may not speak English. Yeah. Uh, and, and we and also bring it on, out, Jerry, with yeah, the back of the house, Jerry. Coming out of my mouth, brother. There you go. <laughs> we introduced the term back house, as Jack just said, the back of the house. And that means all the food, uh, if you will, uh, even, let's say, uh, materials such as uh, tables and chairs, it could even be uh, electronic equipment brought into these rooms, is brought in via, via back hallways. And those back hallways are also serviced by stairwells, stairwells that could have standpipes. Uh, if that room, let's say the ballroom, was completely occupied and a fire broke out on a stage, if you will, we're not, meaning the fire service, we're not coming in against the crowd like salmon swimming upstream. We may very well, and the battle plan, we'd give you this information, come in via the back house. Let's, now, back houses also exist in other occupancies. You'll see them in mixed-use occupancies. The lowest six floors of the Time Warner building on Central Park South, let's say Columbus Circle. You may as well say it's it's six floors. It's 20-foot ceilings. It may as well be a 12-story building. But all of those retail shops and things like that, everything is being delivered by the back house. It's not coming through the mall. And we have to know that these things exist because that's how we're going to approach fires possibly, uh, so that we're not fighting against people trying to exit the building. Is that right, Jack? Yes. Yep. That's it. And you'll get the back of the house stuff also in, in hospitals too, and even nursing homes. So, well, mm. those are basically the, the occupancies we dealt with. Now let's go into part three. Now we're talking about erecting a skyscraper and looking ahead to new design techniques. So one of the things we look at definitely is how this building is evolving going up. So, Jerry, you want to start us off with that, and I'll pick up on alterations. How's that? Thank you. Uh, and as a matter of fact, like we had mentioned in Chapter 7, let's say uh, fire uh, and tenability as far as levels of fire. Uh, buildings under construction, if you will. Of course, we start out with the site, uh, meaning uh, that site, it could be a building that has to be demolished before you can build a new high-rise building because that's something that uh, is certainly occurring throughout the world, if you will. Uh, as a matter of fact, 20, 270 Park Avenue was probably the largest, tallest building to ever be. I'm not going to use the word demolished. I'm going to use constructed. Uh, actually, mm. before that, the Singer Building in Manhattan was the largest building to be deconstructed in 1969. But uh, we, we talk about deconstruction, then we talk about uh, site clearance, excavation, things like we talk about blasting, blasting sites. Uh, and then from there, 
we talk about responding to fires and emergencies in construction sites. If it's a fire and or uh, the fire or emergency is going to occur in one of three phases of construction. We broke it down into three phases. Phase one, two, and three. Phase one, foundation stage. It's an area where it could be excavation. They're just uh, building, pouring, setting the foundation. Level two, it's in an open stage. It's beyond the foundation stage, but yet the building is Mm -hmm. still open. Why we mention these two things? In those two stages, you may still be able to hit it with a deck gun if you have access. Of course, we speak about access. We speak about NFPA 241. You are the authority having jurisdiction. The fact that NFPA 241 in 2018 made the owner of the building responsible. You have to know that. The owner of the building is now responsible for the fire and life safety of everybody in that site, including firefighters. It also included now a site safety manager uh, and planning, including the fire department in the planning process. Uh, then we there's a level three. Level three is now the building is starting to become enclosed. Well, now fires are going to react. We could talk about fire dynamics. are going to react as if they're in an occupied building. Phase one, two, or three. Let's keep it simple. Uh, and and then from there, of course, <clears throat> we we talk about all aspects of construction. You know, in chapter three, yes, we spoke about steel. We spoke about concrete. We speak about high strength concrete. By the way, all the new innovations of concrete, modular construction. We also talk about uh, in chapter eleven because that's going to really. Uh, become more and more popular uh, in the United States. Uh, as a matter of fact, New York City, the tallest modular building built in New York City is in Brooklyn, right down the block from uh, CNY headquarters, right on Flatbush Avenue. So it's coming, and we have to know, let's say, the process. Uh, when there's accidents, we talk about crane failures. We talk about rigging accidents. We talk about uh, firefighters falling. Uh, falls is the greatest injury that you'll ever respond to it's mentioned in that book the fire service is going to respond for one reason or another when buildings are born sick and dying born they're brand new they're being built brand new construction sick renovations or alterations dying when they're going to be demolished when they're undergoing demolition and we speak about asbestos abatement by the way we don't get away from that we had three Mm -hmm. firefighters killed in the deutsch uh bank building mm. uh, yep. as a, a specialist abatement project. Jack, would you like to talk about alterations and renovations? Yeah, and the alterations and renovations. Jerry gave me the sick buildings because he told me I was a sick person. <laughs> well? <laughs> In existing buildings, you know, like uh, I deal with offices, you know, a new, a new tenant comes in, they, don't make, they might gut the floor. That's a major renovation. They'll take everything down, slab to slab. Mm. Others might just come in with a minor alteration. So now they're adding more fire loads onto the floor. And what they'll do, and it depends on how big it is in the building, they may take an elevator out and just, just service that. Uh, in renovating uh, an old existing building, uh, for example, a in Foley Square, a courthouse, 34 floors, all right, where we're, we're protecting the courts, uh, all the, uh, what do you call it, the walls that are, that are solid wood, 
during the construction. There's no uh, there's no fire alarm system in the area. We've taken out stamp pipes and that, so we had to go. And again, we're bringing into the book the local company, the first battalion, uh, saying stab these out. Put signs on the on the cabinets there. Stair uh, out of service. Use stair A. Something like that. So all and in some buildings, you might see a, what I call a, a, a Band-Aid around the, the fire, existing fire alarm panel. In some of these buildings, they're occupied while it's doing some gut work. So all right. these things are going on in, in these sick buildings here. And be very careful about when they want to take out your standpipes and they want to take out a staircase. You say, time out here. <laughs> you put in a new staircase? Put the new one in, then we'll take the other one out. Even though it's it's it, the building is unoccupied, it's going under major renovations. I still need two stairs, so you have to work that out uh, with the uh, the construction company on that. And Jerry hit on asbestos abatement and that, and dealing with negative pressure on the in the floor, and then all the the maze of of uh, you know decontamination up there and everything. So those are things that that are in uh, chapter of eleven. And getting to the end here, talking about looking ahead, tall building designs and everything. Uh, Jerry hit a little bit on these uh, hubs, uh, urban hub centers. Uh, we're talking about mega cities, uh, tall building uh, paradigm shift. All right. Now I'm reading lately that people want to get away from high-rise buildings. Mm. Stay tuned for version two. All right. Uh, new technology. Small, here it is. Small cities, uh, big big buildings. All right. Uh, uh, new technologies. Uh, fire alarm, smoke control systems. Uh, uh, Glenn Corbett, the great Glenn Corbett, called it the, uh, the operational mysteries of, of the fire alarm smoke system. Uh, they're all over the place. They're in different panels. Each fire alarm panel, and I should have said this before, is unique. Each one, every manufacturer is unique. An unwritten rule on fire alarm panels, they only last 15 years. Don't tell anybody. All right? There's nothing in the code yeah. about that. All right? The whole idea is that they're trying to get, because new technology comes out. What, what's out there, no one's utilizing it. We bring it out in the book. In the back of the, of the NFPA 72 in the annex, metropolitan cities can standardize their fire alarm panel. So let's just... Take a metropolitan area. I have uh, 2,300 high-rise buildings, uh, 2,300 panels, multiplied by di different manufacturers, multiplied by different ages of the panel. All right? So all those things are in play. But now let's go and say, hey, let's make it a standardized thing. You can open up a panel, acknowledge it could be top left, and another one could be bottom right. Another one might not say ACK. Where's the ACK? Oh, it just lights up and says fire. So that's just the panel. Now, who's giving you instructions? And this is what we go into, how to operate the firefighter smoke control system. And when you go into some of these buildings, it looks like a Star Wars panel. One, one panel I went into, the, the, the fire command center, was like 12 feet long. Where do I start? And it says here, firefighter manual control. So who's chained? training the fire officers about this. So those are some of the things we bring out in looking ahead in these designs and everything. Jerry, you want to pick up the rest on that? Particularly, Jerry, that small city, small firefighting? Well, I'll tell you what. If anything, go for it. That's probably the, the norm. Uh, yeah. Small department. Uh, yeah. Limited staffing. Uh, 
take a look at a city like West Palm Beach, uh, Florida, uh, right now, as a matter of fact. I mean, Miami has uh, exploded with high-rise and innovations, if you will. Uh, they have a high-rise there, the Porsche building, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, is that right, Jack? Porsche, uh, the yeah, vehicle? Yeah, Porsche. Uh, yeah, you can't bring your Bentley in, though, Jerry. Uh, whereas you drive into, let's say, a uh, space at the base of the building, <clears throat> it's an elevator. And that elevator takes your vehicle to your apartment. If it's an electric vehicle, I would guess it's plugged right in. Uh, but in any event, <clears throat> and they also have innovations of automated parking uh, in certain buildings. Again, you mm-hmm. drop your car off and the car brings it to a space within a parking garage. And if you look at the uh, standards, uh, on let's just say parking garages, uh, mm-hmm. that standard will refer to you to NFPA 13 that talks about a fire protection system. And believe it or not, you go to 13 and it says uh, an automatic detection fire alarm system is not required in that type of parking garage. It's insanity, but you wouldn't know that <laughs> unless you uh, you read the codes. But in any event, wow. West yep. Palm. Wow. Is a small department, nine nine units, and in Manhattan, people in the financial uh, arena are referring to West Palm as Wall Street South. People are just uh, and uh, corporations and financiers are moving out of New York City to West Palm. They're building more and more high-rise buildings uh, for commercial use, but residential use. It's off the charts. Uh, so there's many cities to, uh, throughout the United States that are just growing. Mm-hmm. They have, again, limited staffing. They need to take a look at this book to, one, understand the challenge, the vertical challenge. It's, uh, what to expect with, res- with respect to, let's say, fire dynamics. It's discussed in the book, and we discussed the research uh, that FDNY, and uh, I was privileged to, let's say, be the catalyst of live fire research in high-rise buildings, including wind-impacted fires. We give you all the size-up visuals that you could, one, judge uh, and determine whether you have a wind-impacted fire uh, on arrival. We speak about smoke management and control and the research FDNY in Chicago was involved in in pressurizing stairwells. What does it take? Where to place them? Uh, In one of the appendices, if you will, of Chapter 9, It'll give you illustrations on uh, where to set up fans, even for below-grade fires and where smoke is below-grade, all of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So there's a lot there. There's a lot to learn. Yeah, yeah. And also in this, this chapter, we're talking about elevator system technology. We're now dealing with MRL uh, elevators, these machine roomless. They're belt-driven, all right? Uh, also, they're coming up with now taking a look at twin elevator cars. We had double-deckers, uh, they're attached, but now twin elevators running in the same shaftway at different times, all right? And ho- they're like the Tesla. If it comes close to something, they're supposed to stop. Uh, mm-hmm. Vertical ones that go up now, they go up to the 15th floor, stop, and transfer horizontally over to the next one. And the challenges Jerry and I picked up ago, what if they're stuck in the horizontal position? How do we get them? So little things here with that we're seeing with uh, with buildings coming uh, as a, as a, a problem. Uh, looking at uh, the IC track IC tracking systems, smart stuff, uh, high rise uh, intelligence systems uh, in the way of artificial intelligence, smart battle plans, 
in going into what we're trying to find, redefine super and mega. All right, high rise is super high rise building is, is a 987 feet or more. A mega, we don't have them here, they're over in Asia. A mega is 1987 feet more. This is where in these in these super buildings you're going to need multiple staging, decon, and everything else. Uh, uh, pencil buildings, eh, you know, it, it made the one building I dealt with is 85 feet in width. Really, they have a weight at the top. It's 1.8 1.8 million pounds. The weight they keep from shifting, and it still shifts. They're having problems in these buildings already. So these are some of the things we're looking at, and Jerry hit a little bit on it, urban hubs. How about anybody ever heard of micro apartments? Really small little apartments. How about tubes, uh, like, like gerbil tubes that are acting as hotels? Just sleep in there. You come out and you go to a common bathroom down the hall. Uh, they're, they're called capsule part hotel spaces. Obviously illegal conversion spaces, you know. We dealt with that with the, the – with the fire in, in the Bronx, you know, with everybody, the firefighters bailing out there. Now you have that going on. It's a permit process, too, with telling people about. Get involved in that. You know, when you see construction, stop. Go in there. See, challenge them. Where's your permit? You know, big cities, they, they, a lot of them don't even have that. So yeah. I think in essence of trying to break this book apart, is there was a rationale why we had it in three sections. All right, and we're trying to give you globally what we know now, and it, we're looking at. We hope that this becomes a foundation for where we're going next. In in Saudi Arabia, Jerry, remember the building I showed you? They're building one building, a ground scraper, Jim and Anthony. It's a hundred miles long. Wow! 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 And they're coming up with things that are just mind-boggling. Uh, and, and look at the designs out there. It, it, you can do so much with twisting steel and everything else, cantilevers, mm-hmm. all this other stuff. So it, it, it's going to be more and more of a challenge to us. More and more of this stuff is going to get lighter weight. All right? Look mm-hmm. what we had pre what we called the 1938 code as far as the cubic uh, uh, yards in there versus to what uh, – Oh, God, Chapman, the third division, uh, Jerry, Elma? Elma Chapman. Elma Chapman said in the 1960s when they put up the skin buildings, and sorry, he made this comment. It's not a good one today, but he goes, Chief, what do you feel about these new buildings compared to the Chrysler building, the Empire State building? You go, a plane, go right through, and we'll move altitude of speed. So he's just telling you that we're dealing now, that's then, that the material is even more lighter. And we're still trying to grab cold up here. And we're having this problem with the outside cladding. It's, it's, it, with the consumer products people, I can recall a product. If I have a bad product out there in the building, I can't recall it. That's, that's crazy. You got all these yeah. buildings out there with this cladding on, I can't recall it. Those are the challenges that are there. This is what we see, and uh, we hope that those who take take on this book here, uh, you know, get to appreciate the amount of time that the three of us put into this book. Sherry? Yeah. Like a, well, a doctorate. Yeah. I could be a dentist. You guys did, I have a question for both of you guys. Have you guys read about the ones that are starting to uh, build 
that are basically upside down. They're more narrow at the bottom than they are at the yeah. top. Yeah. That, again, to me, I'm looking at the structural steel that's exposed to fire. I know they're supposed to have, you know, protected steel, yeah. but eventually that's going to feel fail. What happens when these buildings that are actually, like you said, cantilevered over other buildings, um, what are the stresses on that type of construction? Well, again, how long is the flame impingement going to be there and things of that nature is one thing. And we're hoping that, and I'm pretty sure that they did. Anything can't leave it over a small lot, low rise. Let me pick on like a four-story roof over a four-story roof because of air rights. All right, that roof membrane should be taken off and put down with a higher fire-resistant rating roof. That's number one. Number two, the undersiding of the anticleaver, uh, cantilever, I'm sorry, should be uh, increased. It, it says a minimum. Here is the key word, minimum. Not at minimum. I don't want minimum. I want maximum. It's two hours minimum. I want four hours. Then the other thing, too, is that the windows open up on that side <laughs> above, above the exposed low-rise roof. So all the little things come into play that people got to look at and take it apart. Say, well, I'll let you do this, but you can't do that. All right? Uh, that Jerry, that, that uh, 270 Park is a cantilever building. It's a block long, right? So it, well, you can sure. protect it. I'm not right? sure. That... Yeah, it comes up, Jerry. It, it's narrow at the bottom. It curves out up, I think, about the second or third floor. I agree. I would yeah. not call that cantilever. Okay. A cantilever has other... a hold. Go ahead, Jack. Go ahead, Jerry. You're good. I'm sorry. Cantilever has a whole different definition. A cantilever is a part of a structure that extends horizontal out from the structure with no support underneath. Okay. 270 Park Avenue has a small base, but yet its supports go out on a diagonal. And from that diagonal, they then go Mm -hmm. straight up the perimeter walls. Okay. That is not really it, considered a cantilever. It, it, the, uh, another thing in construction, have you heard of top-down building? Yeah, that's kind of what I would lean toward. Yeah, there's, there's a top-down, there's, there's a new construction method. I'm just starting to, to read about it. Jerry, you, have you seen that? No, Jack. Okay. Yeah, it's just... I just caught it about two weeks ago. It's a top-down thing where they're starting to take somewhat of the, the foundation, leave it there, put in the, the middle, the core, then start building the building down rather than up. What, they, what they're getting from this, I don't know yet. So I, I have to, we have to investigate it more. So, again, these are all the things that throw we're in. We're trying to get caught up to what we have now. Look at the things that are throwing at us real quickly, more and more these days, faster and faster. Wow. I, I want to go back to an early discussion. It was really, really brief. And I, and I hope this is going to be the coming thing, is the FAR systems. A lot of our listeners probably are not familiar with that, number one. And the, my first question, it's a two-part question. My first question, do you think it will be adopted pretty much universally in the future, at a certain level, like something that's over 12 stories, it shall have a FAR system. And for our listeners, please give a, a brief 
discussion of what a FAR system is. Gary, you and me, or? Go ahead, Jack. So a FAR system is a firefighter air risk uh, replenishment system. All right? And like Jerry said, it's, it's something like a standpipe system. All right? And the ones I've seen, uh, and they, they, again, uh, we have that great divide in the United States. It's called the Mississippi. All right? On the West Coast, uh, we ran into this. Me and the late Jimmy Ellison ran into this in Sacramento when we did the FDIC show. We saw her on the outside side of the conversation, met the guy. And it's been in California since the late 80s and so forth and slowly making its way across the country. Uh, what I see value here, and, and Mike Gagliano writes on smoke management, you know, I lose elevators. It takes one firefighter to run, take two bottles per floor. So if I'm up 30 flights, I need 30 firefighters just to run two bottles, put them down on the landing, and keep going. All right? Now you have a system in the building, and everybody, uh, somebody goes, oh, well, you know, I can't do that in my air. Wait a minute. I, I ran a hospital system <laughs> with medical air and everything else. Never had a problem. As long as you, like everything else, you monitor things. So you can have a, a what do you call it, a, a system with quick connection. You also have a system where you put the bottles in the container and you pressurize it, sealed up. All right? The, the, the idea here is that uh, manpower-wise, how much it takes, particularly smaller departments, you know, how about – we're not trying to – everybody says, oh, they'll be, they'll be using the air. I'm trying to control them on two bottles. Well, that's management. So you have safety officers there. So we, all the time we answered everyone's questions about this system. The value it has, and, and I'm dealing with these super tall buildings. Where am I, how am I getting my air up to the 70th, the 70th floor? All right. They are now expanded the, the FAR system out into large warehouses, into tunnel areas, and things of that nature. Uh, if you have an air truck with a compressor on it, it's just like a standpipe. You plug into the building, get your in. So you, there's different methods of it. I don't want to get into too technology, but I see a lot of value here. Uh, I do have a lot of uh, some departments that say, no, no, we'll never use that. But the idea is that it's, a lot of departments have done it. They're expanding a lot in Texas, the, the Phoenix, uh, they've done you know, things like that. So the, the idea is coming. You need to take a look at it. You need to take a look at what you have now. Some cities don't even have an air compressor truck. Wow. They go from, they go from point A, fill up all your bottles, put them on a truck, and my nickname for that is called the soda truck. Go deliver to the firehouse or go deliver to the scene. Mm-hmm. Well, if you have an air compressor truck, and if the fire is there and you, you get some smoke at a lower level, go two blocks away, fill it up. So there's value here for an air replenishment system more and more. It's, it's like in the beginning, we didn't want standpipes in buildings either. So it's an educational thing. Uh, I, I think it's making a lot more headway these days. Uh, I, I won't say who, but I know a large company just bought, bought the you know, smaller company out. Uh, and the other thing, it's, it's in the code. It's not totally upfront in the code. In 2000, boom, I'm losing my time here, either 12, 14, or 16, uh, myself, two other guys put it in what's called Appendix L in the International Fire Code. And the rationale for that is that when we were dealing with individual departments, they were making up their own ordinances. We said, well, we need to standardize this. The one way of doing that was put it in Appendix L. And the standardization for me is that 
All right, we're going to put it in, say, uh, the ABC building. All right, we're all going to put it in, everybody put it in stair A. And we tell any mutual aid countries that companies that come in that you can get air uh, in stair A at any time. You can put it on every three floors, every five floors. If you have quick connects, you can put them on every floor. You can put them in a secured room. Depends upon your your environment that you're dealing with. All right, so there, there are ways of doing this a lot more and a lot better than ever before. I have a lot of faith in this large company that, that bought this group. Uh, they have a lot of insight, uh, and they're affiliated with uh, uh, an SCBA company also. That's, that's what's here, and that's where it's going. And both Jerry and I and, and, and Murtaugh and Harry profess this a lot. Jerry? <laughs> it's sort of a no-brainer. I mean, yeah, really. FDNY's policy is if you're coming in, uh, when you're not part of the first alarm and you're coming in on later alarm, every firefighter shall bring in an extra bottle. And you'll see other cities doing mm-hmm. the same thing. As a matter of fact, yep. the fire that uh, Chicago just had that extended from floor to floor, auto exposure. If you look at the uh, news briefs and reports and videos, all of those Chicago firefighters that were coming in, uh, not first two, we're all coming in with extra bottles. Why do you want to put your firefighters through that fatigue? They're coming in with their own equipment. They're loaded down with bunker gear, things like that, 60, 100 pounds of equipment. Now you're causing them to come in with extra bottles. Then you have to get those bottles up to the fire sector. It just doesn't make sense when you can have a system in the building that you can replenish yeah. bottles uh, and have air on demand. Brick connects, things and how, like that. Yeah. Right. And, and how yeah. simple and one is the system yeah. in the building? What, Anthony? How simple is it to put a system in a building? It's, it's pretty pipe. simple. It is. It's, it's uh, not that bad. It's, it, I think the, it's the size less, of the pipe is like a half inch. <laughs> exactly. It, it's less destruction. and uh, Yeah. Uh, you could put it in the same stairwells with the water. Sandpipe. Sandpipe system as well. Yeah. And fire stop at each floor. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and Anthony and... Jim, the beauty that I like about it, and Jerry hit it a little, it, all my search and rescue teams above the fire have a, now that they're running out of air, have a quick connect somewhere. Go get it, connect mm-hmm. together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Crazy shit, right? So Sounds like a future. Here's a yeah. Here's a question. One of the things we found, you know, you know you're talking about protection in place, right? And uh, all of our officers carry those, uh, those CO meters on their coat. So whereas years ago you might be able to protect somebody in place because, yeah, you'd have a little odor of smoke and, you know, protect them in place, you know, several floors above the fire, maybe down a hall. Mm-hmm. Now they go into these places where, okay, we used to be able to protect them in place, but now CO meters are going off like crazy. Now we got to move them somewhere else, get them out on a balcony, yeah. whatever it is. You know, it's, it's, you know the technology has is, is sort of complicated it a little bit, or, you know, or, well, made it more complicated. Yeah. Well, to in, say the truth, in, I in think that, techno- that technology is an assist, meaning if you are, yeah. in fact, in an area where there's high CO because you have a meter and you have civilians there where effectively you were trying to shelter them in place, now you can bring them to an area where the readings will be low. And what how that mm-hmm. could be is if you know which way the wind direction is on the building, right. you can go to that base, that exposure of the building, take a window. Pressurize mm-hmm. it with outside air, if you will, and uh, make it a clean space and drop the CO readings and shelter them in place there temporarily 
until it's safe to do so because you've pressurized stairwells and you've made arteries clean for transport. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. The other thing with you know, it's just something that came up is, once we got the meters. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know? The other thing we took a look at in the book is refuge floors. Mm. This, if you if you it's pick on a sixty story building, well they can't get all the way down. Well, X number of floors become a refuge area, and that refuge area could be open to the outside. Uh, in in one building, when I was with the Eighth Battalion in the city, uh, the, the guy kept saying, "Well, I'll take you to the drum floor." And I said to the battalion chief, "What's a drum floor?" He goes, "I don't." Know. We go down to the drum floor. It's two, it's two stories, and we we open it. We're in a mechanical space. Okay, we're in a mechanical space. We go outside. This is a blow through now, and with these pencil buildings, every X number of floors, there's two floors, maybe every 20 feet, 20 floors up, where the air blows through, so the wind doesn't shift that much. So we we get outside, and there I see the drum. It's it's the tur of the wind. It's so it's it's a drum shape, so the wind goes around it. I said, I'm good. And I said to the chief, I said, chief, not for nothing, I said, but uh, in mechanical space, what if you can't get people down? Would you think of using this as a refuge area? And he just started thinking about it. I'm going through a mechanical space, yeah, but in the refuge areas we're proposing, there's no mechanical room. It's an open space. And they'll protect right. it even more. So I might have deluge systems around in case uh, something comes up. But that's coming more and more, too, all right? Because mm. you, the defending place and shelter in place has taken another curve after Grant Hill. Totally. Yeah. All right? Self-evacuation and everything. It's like, you know, and that's why it's important for you to get there and announce that you're in in the building. Not only that, these refuge areas and floors, as per what we suggest in the book, could very well be on a separate uh, independent Mm -hmm. HVAC zone, if you will, so it's not contaminated by other areas of the building. It'll also have the amenities of, let's say, seating. It may have mm-hmm. uh, toiletries, things like that. Uh, nobody talks about a refuge floor that has a bathroom, by the way. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah. this is reality. Yeah, and, and, mm. and the more you look into this, gentlemen, the more, the more you, you and again, you think out of the box a little bit, you know, is it doable? Does it make sense? You know, and uh, and that's always a constant channel challenge. And you know, once you get settled into something, you know, something else comes along and say, "Oh, I can modify that even more." Exactly. Right, right. It, it's continuously evolving. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know. Oh my God, <clears throat> man. Well, what, what, I have to. What, give, what research, have... man? Yeah. Well, not Thank only you. that. I mean, it's great. Of course, we had to do research. I mean, on fly dynamics alone, looking at white papers, mm. science papers, things like that. Yeah. Uh, to, well, let's be technically correct in what's presented in this book rather than just our opinion. Right. Imagine Just like Jim said, we, we try yeah. to take it beyond what the large metropolitan areas and what does the basic, basic country deal with. All right, particularly mm. with limited manpower and things like that. But mm. the, the techniques and everything are there, no matter what size the, your your fire department is. Even the and search lines, uh, using uh, thermal images, all of that uh, is. How about this, Anthony? How many 
uh, let's say instructors and some of them outstanding instructors uh, in the fire service. They teach how to advance hand lines. Yes. Yes. How many? How many of them are teaching how to back a line out when you got to back one out? Any of them? Mm-hmm. We were, we were talking about this the other day, right? Yes, sir. Uh, yeah. And it's yeah. talked about I, in the I book. And I will I mention Kenny Platt, who's an outstanding fire officer. I believe he just uh, retired from uh, FDNY. What an outstanding young man! Great uh, yeah, dude. He he added to the book, if you will, on uh, how to back out a handline because really nobody talks about it, and sometimes you have to do it. It's not like we're abandoning yeah. a line in a forest fire because we're being overrun by fire. Uh, I mean, we're getting conditions here where maybe we need to back out this line or maybe we need to reposition it. Yeah. Agreed. You, you know, if, you, if you're going to leave the line, you've just, you've just lost your protection. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. yeah <laughs> does anybody you know, what? know where the probe is? Right, that's another question. Who, who's the probie? But as far as backing out, my department practiced that because we're small okay. and we don't have, we can't call for another line. So we have to, if we got in one line in, we got to make, unless it's a, a total evacuation where, you know, you got to get out, the building's collapsing. Other than that, the line gets backed out uh, on a pretty regular basis. But I agree with you. I've not seen it in any school, any, um, you know, I'll call them the, the academy classes. I don't see them teaching that, but I think it's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, listen. So it's full service um, book. That's what I want to talk. I Kudos to all three of you guys. I think you've done a monumental amount of research. You packaged I read the, the outline today. You packaged it in such a a systematic way, the way it flows from chapter to chapter and section to section, I think it'll be, it's going to be a difficult read, just, but it's going to be a great read. But the way you package it, you can do one section at a time. So anybody could pick this up from the firefighter to the fire officer to the fire chief and to the marshal's office. I think it's very well put together. I haven't read the book, only the outline. And um, I think to our listeners, um, Really look into getting this book. And if you go into FDIC, stop at these guys' class out at FDIC. And, um, you know, one of my problems is that they were always in the classroom next door to me. But, uh, the, pe- <laughs> but the, people come to, the people who come to my class are looking for a different thing. I'm, I'm teaching private dwelling fires. They're teaching, you know, uh, high-rise stuff. So I think uh, it was great, but it was always fun. They were always next door to me. And uh, I think you guys... From what I see so far, I think you did a wonderful job. And everybody listening, um, pick it up. It'll be coming out real, real soon. Yeah. We yes. Uh, absolute unbelievable accomplishment, brothers. And, and, you know, listen, I know both of you is a real long time. And, you know, I'm real proud of you guys. And uh, you guys should be proud of yourselves. I can't believe you were able to accomplish this podcast uh, only in – audio, whereas not one of us was able to talk with our hands. <laughs> well, I, hate, I have to tell you, you just can't see it. Yeah, I have to tell you the same thing. I'm using my hands. I, I almost knocked over my desk lamp. 
Jack is trying to find his glasses, cane. by the way. Yeah, I'm trying to find my glasses. Never mind. <laughs> I figured you knocked over your cane, Duffy. <laughs> um, I'm not there yet, buddy. I'm oh fighting that shit tooth and nail. Yeah, well, we all are. You might you might think I'm the oldest, but the reason I look this old is because I had a tough paper route when I was a kid. Yeah, we all did. <laughs> I well, thank you I for the privilege. The, well, thank you so much for being here. And in closing, like I always close um, to all the listeners out there, um, when you have a chance, please try to buy American if you have a choice. Um, as firefighters, our salaries are based on tax dollars. If Americans aren't working, um, taxes aren't being paid. So try to buy American when you can. I know you can't always, but uh, just give a little thought when you're in the store looking at a pair of jeans. Um, you know, try to buy an American pair. Uh, it'll help all of us. So that's my closing statement for this show. Other than thank you, Jack and Jerry. Um, I'm very honored to have you on our show. Um, I learned a lot here today. Again, you know, I'm a suburban guy. So a lot of what you talked about, um, especially divisions and sectors. And, you know, I just think it's would be so monumental in high rise buildings and you kind of, um, put it in a clear way. And again, looking at the chapters and the sections, I think, uh, people could learn a lot from this book. So thank you again. Thank you for uh, letting Thank us you, come Brian. on your show and uh, give us an opportunity to do more than the, the uh, you know what I say, the listening audience and that. Uh, and thank you. And Anthony, you know, the books you've written over the years have been very enlightening too. And you're on your fourth Thanks. edition. Jerry and I will pick yeah. your brains one for the second. <laughs> oh, ain't nice. uh, You're a powerful example, both of you guys. I respect you quite a lot. Yeah, well, listen, you, you know what? I was Telling Duffy, I said, I knew we were going to, we usually do an hour. We get three hours. This is the longest show we've ever done, but every minute was worth it, man. Oh, oh my thank God. you. Um, when is it air? One more thing before when is it air, Anthony and Jim? Um, it's airing it's right live. now. It's live. It's live right now. But if you, go, oh, okay. if, you, if you go to the link I sent you, it's on demand. So you just click that link in uh, 10 oh. minutes after we okay. sign off. You click the link right. and you can hear the whole thing again, and it goes on forever. I there are shows that we did five years ago that you can still listen uh, to. So just I, you know, I, I saw that on Fire Engineering. I thought it was a hot mon- hot monitor. <laughs> um, I just have one more question. Features anything you want to say in closing? Uh, Jack, do you have anything you'd like to close or summarize? Yeah, it's just, just very, yeah, very brief again, Yeah, very brief. It, it's been a pleasure working with Jerry and, and Jim on this. I, I, I've learned so much, still continue to learn. And the whole idea is that uh, we, uh, the three of us wanted to lay a different foundation for these vertical challenges, and uh, we're just getting started. So, uh, And hopefully, uh, mm. you know, everybody be safe out there. Thank you. Yeah. Jerry, you know, Jerry. ditto, uh, but uh, Jack and I, and uh, certainly Jim, uh, we're making sure that uh, we're recognizing Bobby Holton in the book as well. 
Uh, you know, he was a great supporter of uh, what we wanted to accomplish here. Uh, he knew, uh, you know, what we had to offer, let's put it that way. And uh, let's say he uh, prodded, if you will, uh, those in the, the publication end of this, and they were overworked themselves. I mean, we were hearing all kinds of uh, uh, problems with paper shortages and ink shortages and things like that. But uh, the best part, it's going to print. And Bobby's in heaven right now. Uh, he's a, another guardian angel that has joined the, the largest fire department in the world. And he's going to see to it that the, the book will be available for FDIC. And we're thankful for that. God bless you, Bobby. Nice. Nice. Chief Abello, uh, anything? Uh, yeah, you know, listen, uh, it, it's so obvious that, you know, the three of you guys is just a labor of love, man. And, and you know, it's, uh, it's it, yeah, I can't, say, I can't say more about it, but I love you guys, including you, Grandbrother Duffy. I love you guys, and, uh, <laughs> you know, we will, we will see you guys at the FDIC, if not before. Thank you very much, my brother. Okay. Everybody, thank you. Stay please. driving, Anthony. Thank you. Please stay safe. God bless you. The funny thing about firemen, night and day, they're always firemen. See you next month. God bless all. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.